Well, first of all, good afternoon. Um, so we're, we're, we're now going to focus on four fairly discrete um, aspects of outsourcing, and it's probably worth um, spending a little bit of time just explaining the rationale behind uh, choosing those four, these, these four different aspects. Um, first of all, we have multi-sourcing models. John's already mentioned that um, multi-sourcing is very, uh, very much in vogue at the moment. Um, it is fast becoming the predominant uh, sourcing model, certainly for uh, mid and large size organizations. Um, and sole sourcing for those mid and large size organizations is probably now the exception uh, rather than the rule. Um, we'll look at some of the drivers for that um, increase in multi-sourcing. Multi-sourcing raises a number of issues that you don't have in a sole sourcing scenario. Um, we'll look at some of those and then look at how we can um, address those uh, using the contract terms. Um, the second area is value for, for money provisions. Um, again, John mentioned that cost nowadays is, 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 is king. Um, value for money provisions in the contract have always been important. Um, they're even, e even more important nowadays. Um, I want to pick up on a couple of um, points around benchmarking. We're not looking at benchmarking in its entirety, but just some of the, the lessons that we've learned from earlier outsourcing in relation to how we run an out, uh, a benchmarking. Um, and then looking at uh, continuous improvement and gain share, um, concepts that are mentioned in pretty much every um, bid or tender process, but actually um, they're incredibly difficult to capture uh, from a contractual standpoint. So we'll look at some of the, the, the tools that you can use to do that. Um, then termination and exit, and again, we're not looking at exit in its entirety here, but really trying to focus on some of the lessons that we've learned from earlier uh, outsourcing deals. Um, and then finally, uh, and really as an extension of that, um, David's going to look at some of the employment trends and outsourcing, focusing in particular um, on some of the issues around exit. So, <clears throat> I mean, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the benefits of, of multi-sourcing, so just touching on these um, quite quickly. Um, first and foremost, you're getting access to best-of-breed suppliers and solutions. So rather than going for a sort of a, a jack-of-all-trades, you're actually getting access to market-leading uh, market suppliers, market-leading skills in each of the service lines that are being outsourced. Um, secondly, and, and probably almost as importantly, um, you're, you're creating greater competition across your supplier base, not only during the bid process, which you have in a sole source anyway, but more importantly, um, during the life of the contract itself. So where you're expanding the service scope or where you're le um, letting a new work package, having the ability to create a competitive environment during the life of the contract is going to give you a better pricing, better pricing terms and better deal terms generally. Um, you also have greater flexibility, so it's much easier in a multi-sourcing scenario to terminate an individual service line or discrete work package and either bring that back in-house or indeed award it to uh, one of the other suppliers than you have in a sole source uh, environment. Um, Multi-sourcing does raise a number of, of issues and risks that you don't have in, in sole source. I think first and foremost, um, uh, you don't have a single point of responsibility, so you don't have a single throat to choke if things go wrong. Um, in contractual terms, what that means is it's very difficult to, um, to get an end-to-end -end service level. So you'll have service levels for each of the individu individual service lines, but very difficult to apply um, an end-to-end -end service level across the board. Um, the customer retains the integration risk, uh, which in turn means that there is quite a significant um, increased management overhead for, for customers in a multi-sourcing scenario. Um, it's clearly going to depend on the number, sorry, the number of, um, of, of suppliers involved, um, but TPI have done, have done research which indicates that the, the internal management costs can, can be anywhere between 15 and 50% um, of the total contract value. Um, and that's, that's, when you're talking about a, a, a large-scale outsourcing, that is a major additional cost, which needs to be factored into the business case at the outset. 
Um, it also has implications for the customer's re uh, retained organisation. That retained organisation is going to, to need to be a lot, a lot larger in order to deal with this management uh, overhead. You also have a greater risk of, of service gaps. So with a sole source, um, if something gets missed off the service schedule, you can always deal with it by way of a sweep-up provision or dragnet provision in your contract. You don't have that luxury uh, with multi-sourcing. Um, so what that means is you need, to be, uh, you need to be very clear about where the service boundaries lie between each of the, the supplier's areas of responsibility. Um, and finally, your service delivery is dependent on supplier cooperation. Now you're talking here about suppliers that are in competition with, you, with each other. So it can be quite difficult sometimes to engender that, um, that, that, that uh, degree of cooperation. So looking at how we, uh, how we go about addressing some of these points, first of all, achieving supplier cooperation, um, obvious point, we need to include uh, cooperation and assistance obligations in our contract. Um, but in addition to sort of generic um, cooperation and, and assistance obligations, we need to think about um, the specifics. For example, do the suppliers need access or information about the, the processes, um, the, the standards, the, the interfaces that the other suppliers are using? Um, if they do need that sort of information, then you need provisions in your contract that, that, that call that out specifically. Using a multi-supplier or cross-contract um, governance uh, framework where all suppliers are, are required to participate um, in at least one of the governance bodies. And, and you know, the supplier should understand what's expected of them. Um, they're expected to be transparent and cooperative when they come to, um, to that governance body. And that should be set out in the terms of reference in, in the governance schedule. Um, use of joint service credit and bonus pools. Um, I'd say this is probably in its infancy at the moment. Um, uh, getting suppliers to put some of the margin at risk um, for reasons outside their control is extremely difficult, as you'd imagine. Um, bonus pools, on the other hand, if you're giving the, su the supplier an opportunity to, um, to uh, increase their margin, um, they'll, you know, they'll bite your hand off. Um, and it doesn't sound as unattractive to, the, to, to customers as, as, it, as, it, as it might. Um, if you think back to the, the management overheads and management costs that we talked about, significant costs, if you can some way link um, payment, of your, your payment out of the bonus pool to reduction in that management overhead, that can create quite a, a good solution, a win-win solution for uh, the customer and the supplier. Um, terms to avoid supplier lock-in, uh, I will come on to when we, talk, when we look at exit. Reducing the supplier interdependency risk. Um, the point here is if, um, if you're a customer, if, uh, you know, if, your, if your email system goes down, your CEO doesn't care if it's an application problem, an infrastructure problem, um, a problem with a network, your CEO wants the, the, his email system back up and running again. Um, so provisions in the contract like fix first, um, argue later clauses or Nike uh, just do it clauses um, are quite useful. This is basically what you're saying to your supplier base. Um, we have a problem, go and sort it out. We don't, you know, it doesn't matter where the problem lies, everyone works together to get it sorted out. Um, you then need to deal with the, the, the consequences of um, suppliers uh, de um, devoting additional resource to resolving that problem um, when it transpires or, 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 or it transpires that the problem is not of their making. Um, so in that scenario where the supplier has devoted additional resource, they will legitimately expect to be able to recover their additional costs. So you need to think about your liability provisions and making sure that um, you are able as a customer to recover uh, additional costs that you've paid out to, to other suppliers as a result of a fault um, with one of your suppliers. Um, <coughs> use of operating level agreements is always worth considering. Um, an operating level agreement is 
an agreement between the suppliers and the customer. Um, they're quite useful from a customer perspective in that you can use them to um, be clear about where the service boundaries lie. You can deal with that service risk gap that I, I mentioned earlier on. Um, you can get the suppliers to be clear about what the dependencies are between the two suppliers, how the handoff points are going to work. So from a customer perspective, operating level agreements are really, really useful. Um, the difficulty with operating level agreements is that um, because you've got suppliers and, and competitors uh, involved, it can be very difficult to negotiate. Some suppliers will simply refuse to sign up to them. Um, one way of dealing with that is, and this is quite commonly used, is to make the operating level agreements um, non-binding as between the suppliers themselves. So the only one that can enforce um, the, the, the operating level agreements is the customer uh, themselves. Um, <clears throat> final point here, clearly some of these issues are going to be quite difficult for um, suppliers to, to swallow. You will get pushback from suppliers on a number of these points. So how do you achieve supplier buy-in? Um, I think the, the, the most effective way is simply to be, to be honest and upfront about this at the start of your, your sourcing strategy. You, you make it clear to your suppliers that you're engaging in a multi-sourcing strategy. Um, these are the sort of conditions of entry, the entry criteria. Um, and and, and you, you, you basically be open and honest with your, with your supplier about what will be expected of them. So uh, value for money uh, provisions now. now we, we, we all know that we've got a range of, um, of contract tools um, that are designed to ensure value for money. Um, these range from audit rights through to benchmarking, uh, continuous improvement and gain share. And it's the, it's the last two that I want to focus on um, in this talk. And I'm not going to go through every point on, on, on these slides. We can take questions at the end. There are really just a couple of points I want to um, pull out here. Um, issues that we've, and, and um, lessons that we've learned from, from earlier deals. Um, the first point is that um, it's now clear that, that benchmarking is extremely difficult to, to and, and expensive to negotiate and also to implement. Um, so the first question you need to ask yourselves is whether benchmarking is actually required in your outsourcing contract. Now, you know, going back a few years where seven to ten year deals were the norm, benchmarking was absolutely required. But the deal terms have, have, have come down now, the, 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 the duration of the deal terms. Um, you're getting deals um, of three years. And if it's a three-year deal, you probably don't need benchmarking. Um, you probably won't be able to exercise it in the first year anyway. It takes quite a long time to implement. So you don't see the benefit until um, the end of that three-year ter term anyway. Um, anything over and above three years, you probably do need some form of benchmarking. Um, <clears throat> the second sort of key issue that I think we've learned from earlier benchmarking exercises is that they, are, they can be extremely difficult to implement. Um, they're prone to, to disputes. Um, they, they give rise to deadlocks even before you get to um, either appointment of the benchmarking expert or indeed you know, agreeing the terms of reference for the benchmarking expert. Um, so dealing with as many of those points up front in the contract as you can, nailing those down um, uh, is, is, is really important. Um, just picking out a couple of these points, what is the benchmark target? So what, what target does the, the, does the supplier have to meet? Is it, and does the supplier have to be within the, the, the top 25%? Is it the top 10%? This needs to be thought about in the context of the services and the geographic scope. So if you take, for example, um, a global telecoms outsourcing, um, so it's on a global basis, you've probably only got a handful of suppliers um, that can actually supply that. So asking a supplier to be within the top 25%, probably means that they've got to be the cheapest um, every time round and they've got to perform the best every time round. So you need to think about the target that, that is being set for the supplier based on the, the, the services being provided um, and the, the geographic scope. 
Um, the other issue on, on this slide that I wanted to pick out was the outline terms of reference in the, in the outsourcing contract. Um, these ultimately will be agreed when you appoint your benchmarking experts. The, the terms of reference are going to depend on the expert that you're using. Um, but again, you need to nail down as much of this as possible um, in, in the outsourcing contract at the outset. Benchmarking target we've already talked about. Another important issue is um, the peer group and comparison sample. And we need to think here about whether we're only looking at suppliers in a particular industry sector. Um, probably more importantly, are we looking at any geographical split? So if you as a customer have insisted that your supplier uses an onshore solution or an onshore offshore mix, which is quite common, it's probably unreasonable of you to, um, to expect offshore solutions to be taken into account um, in, the, in, the, in the peer group. If, on the other hand, you've given the, the, the supplier flexibility about the, the, where the solution is based um, and the supplier has chosen an onshore solution, then it's perfectly reasonable, I think legitimate, for you as, as a customer to take into account um, offshore alternatives um, when you're defining that peer group. Um, the contract should also deal with any normalisation issues. So quite often in an outsourcing deal, there will be an element of price smoothing um, at the start of the deal. So the, the supplier will, will um, lower the charges in years one and year two, um, possibly just recovering uh, costs in years one and year two, and then they start to make a margin um, from year three onwards, um, with the result that the charges in year three can be, and four and five can be, can be much higher. If you're not taking into account that price smoothing and just measuring them on their prices at, at, at year three, um, that, can that, that, that can be unfair on the supplier, reflect unfavorably on the supplier. So those sorts of normalization issues Likewise, if the supplier has made any other um, upfront investments, um, perhaps the costs of transition, again, um, the supplier will expect those to be factored in when it comes to running your benchmark exercise. Um, moving on now to continuous improvement and gain share. Now, the reason I wanted to mention this was that um, it's, it's a, a, a complaint, a common complaint amongst the customer community that continuous improvement and gain share um, are concepts that are very often promised um, but seldom delivered. Um, and I think there are probably two, two main reasons for that. The first, which I'll touch on very briefly, is that um, continuous improvement and gain share require a particular type of relationship between the parties. You're really looking at a, a partnering type relationship where both parties are prepared to share the risk um, and indeed the reward. Um, more often than not, what you get is a, is a, is a customer supplier, a traditional cu customer supplier relationship where the customer wants to push as much of the risk to the supplier and the supplier is trying to to back that risk off. And that, that as a relationship, is, is, is a perfectly legitimate uh, approach. But what it means is that things like gain share and continuous improvement are much more difficult to capture and deliver upon in that sort of traditional customer supplier type relationship. Um, the second issue is that um, the concepts have been have proved to be very difficult to capture within the contract. Um, the good news is that we've moved on from, um, from earlier generation outsourcings where um, you know, these took effect simply as reasonable endeavours obligations to pass on the benefit of cost savings. Um, we now have uh, more sophisticated uh, contract tools for dealing with these. Um, JV arrangements, open book and profit share arrangements, particularly common and probably limited to um, longer term public sector deals. Um, in the private sector, we have things like um, binding targets, uh, for example, for charges reductions. Um, so uh, quite often a supplier will um, particularly for first-generation outsourcings, 
a supplier will commit to reducing the charges in years one and years two. The reason they do that, they look at the, how the customer's um, operations are currently uh, working. They realize that there's a lot of inefficiencies in there, low-hanging fruit. So they give commitments, binding commitments, to reduce the, the charges in years one and years two. Um, we also use automatic ratchet mechanisms, particularly useful for um, continuous improvement in service levels. Um, the way these work is that you, you, you look at the supplier's performance um, at the end of each year. Um, the supplier will normally have outperformed suppliers generally don't sign up to service levels that they, 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 they know they can't meet. So the supplier will generally have outperformed. Um, you then uh, either take an average of the, um, the, the performance during the preceding year or you pick the best six months or some other variable and you use that to set the benchmark for, um, for the following year's service levels. Um, another mechanism that's commonly used is, is, is annual reports. So the, the, the supplier here um, is required to come up with a set number of continuous improvement initiatives each year. Um, they will do a sort of a, a, a high-level cost-benefit analysis. Um, those will be presented to the customer, normally as part of a strategic review. Um, the customer can then elect um, which, if any, of those it wants to investigate in further detail, um, at which point the, the, the supplier does a, a, a more detailed um, cost-benefit analysis, probably on a chargeable basis. Um, and then if the customer wishes to proceed with that, that's taken forward um, uh, in, in, in the same way as any other project um, or change would be taken forward. Um, <clears throat> sometimes these will be funded in full by the customer, in which case the customer gets the full benefit. Um, uh, uh, other, on other occasions, um, the supplier will share the, um, the funding cost, um, and that's where you're really into um, this sort of gain-share type arrangement. So a couple of points that you need to think about um, when you're looking at gain-share uh, arrangements. Um, and again, just picking out a couple of points here. First of all, what savings are going to qualify? The key issue here is really a, a, a one for the supplier to be aware of. The, the supplier needs to be aware of um, a, a customer double dip. So quite often the supplier will have baked in um, co uh, assumed cost savings into the price that it's offering the, the, the customer. Um, and for the customer to get a second bite of the cherry in the form of gain share in relation to those types of cost savings um, is, is unfair and it's not what the supplier is expecting. So the supplier needs to be clear as to whether there are any, any types of initiative, any particular initiatives that are sitting outside this, this gain-share mechanism. Um, we need to think about how the project's going to be funded and how the savings and benefits are going to be shared. Um, and I think it's very difficult to, to agree a one-size-fits-all formula upfront in the contract. Um, the, the, the amount of funding that the, the supplier is prepared to bear is going to, de it's, it's going to depend on a case-by-case -case basis. If it's, a, if it's an initiative that the supplier thinks can be ruled out across its other customer base, then the supplier is likely to be prepared to invest more, maybe take a, a lesser share of the benefit on this particular contract. Um, from a customer uh, perspective, they need to think about the impact of early termination of the agreement. In gain share mechanisms, the customer generally gets the benefit um, of the gain share in the form of charges reductions throughout the life of the, or the, the remainder of the agreement. Um, if the agreement is terminated early, um, the customer doesn't see the full benefit uh, of, those, uh, of those reductions um, whilst having made a, 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 an upfront investment. So depending on how the, or the reasons for the, um, the, the early termination, the customer may want to be able to recover some or all of that initial uh, investment. Flip side of the coin, um, a point for the supplier here really, um, they need to think about the consequences of early termination of any gain share project. Quite often the customer um, will insist upon having the flexibility to pull 
again share project halfway through. If it's a customer's business, they need to have control over it. Um, but from a supplier's perspective, particularly where they've made a significant investment up front, um, the project's pulled halfway through. They haven't yet seen the full benefit um, of the, the efficiencies of the gain share. Um, so the supplier will want to, want to have either a termination charge or some other way of being made whole for that upfront initial investment. Um, and the final point here is, is, is thinking about what happens if the savings or efficiencies don't materialise. Um, and the point right here really is to think about um, the liability regime. Typically, your liability regime will exclude um, uh, liability for loss, loss of anticipated savings. Um, if the customer has been uh, uh, persuaded to invest in a, in a significant project, gain share project, that's going to deliver these promised savings, it's implemented as expected and the savings don't materialise. Um, the customer needs to have some sort of uh, right of recovery, whether that's in the form of lost profits or as a minimum being able to recover um, its, its, its upfront additional investment. Um, so finally, termination and exit. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not going to go through every point on this slide, but just picking up a couple of points. I think the, this, the statistic there is quite striking. Around 90% of um, retenders uh, tend to get awarded to the incumbent. And I'm sure there are a number of reasons for that, some good, some bad. Um, but I think one of the key reasons is um, customers, particularly in recent earlier outsourcings, have felt that they're not fully equipped to deal with exits, that the contract doesn't fully equip them. Um, and one of the major reasons for that is inadequate exit planning. Um, most outsourcing contracts nowadays will have um, uh, provisions in them which require the, the supplier to produce an exit plan as part of transition, to keep that updated um, and, and to test at regular intervals throughout the contract. Um, the, the problem is that um, those things tend not to happen. Those, those obligations tend not to get enforced. During transition, we're all focusing on different things, understandably. The exit plan doesn't get prepared during transition. And it really only gets looked at when termination is on the horizon and the customer has lost a lot of its leverage. Um, increasingly, customers are actually um, uh, applying KPIs um, or service credits around those types of performance obligations um, or making certain payments conditional upon the exit plan being produced as a way of ensuring that these, these, these uh, obligations are followed through on. Um, a second point, I think, is uh, the failure to agree parameters on exit costs. And I, I don't have any formal statistics here, but I know anecdotally of customers who have been charged uh, in excess of 30% um, of the annual contract value um, on, on uh, exit costs. That's leaving aside any termination costs. Um, suppliers will legitimately say, um, we cannot price um, exit. We don't know what the environment's going to look like in four or five years. I think that's a valid point. But equally, they can price based on the as-is state um, uh, going into the contract. Suppliers are capable of pricing transition, building that cost into the contract. Um, they, they should at least be able to give you a ballpark figure um, on exit, which is then managed as the environment changes through the change control procedure. Um, and the final point here is, is a point around black box outsourcings. Black box outsourcings um, are basically outsourcings where the customer has no visibility or very little transparency over the types of um, the process, the service delivery model that the supplier is using. Um, and you know, the, 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 the supplier will tend to justify that on the basis that you don't care how we provide the services, you, you, you care about us meeting the service levels. Um, and I think you know, a very fair point. Um, but the customer does need to know um, about the processes, about the service delivery model when it comes to exit, when it comes to being able to retender um, uh, the, the, the services. So again, increasingly, customers are insisting upon 
um, provisions in the contract which require the supplier to produce um, process manuals or process databases um, setting out the service delivery models. Um, the supplier may want to um, carve out certain confidential proprietary processes, but generally the customer will insist upon a, um, some sort of process manual. Um, that's all I wanted to say. I'm going to hand over to David now. He's going to look at some of the people considerations on exit. Um, thanks, Paul. Um, as Paul mentioned, I'm going to look at some of the employment aspects uh, in an outsourcing scenario, uh, concentrating on some employment trends. I'm also going to briefly look at the implications of an application of the transfer regulations, uh, which were introduced in 2006. And finally, I'm going to come on to uh, some of the exit considerations. I've got about five minutes, so I'm going to be try and, try and be quite focused in the areas that I'm um, going to look at. In terms of looking at trends, I think the most important trend is the developments relating to when the transfer regulations um, apply. Um, basically, there are two tests for the application of the transfer regulations. Um, the first is a historic test, which is looking at whether there's a transfer of an undertaking which has retained its identity. It's a multi-factorial test looking at whether all the assets have transferred, whether all the staff have transferred, and in particular whether there's a de degree of similarity between the services before and after the transfer. And that test didn't deal particularly well with outsourcing situations. So the government in 2006 introduced another test, which is by no means mutually exclusive, but that was called the service provision change test. The service provision change test applies where activities go from one party to another. So the key question for the courts over the last couple of years is, when will that apply? When will it kick in? And how wide is the definition? Well, we've had a few cases on this. The first one was the sort of OCS case, as a, 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 a couple of others. But the OCS case involved um, a transfer or alleged transfer involving a restaurant that was turned into a sort of sandwich bar. And the question is whether that was a transfer of an activities. And the court in that case said, no, that's wholly different. Uh, Tupi uh, doesn't apply in that um, scenario. Um, so the question is, why was that? Well, it was because they were wholly different. How far is that going to go? Well, we've had a more recent case, uh, the Ward Hadaway case, uh, that came out in April this year. In that case, um, there was a transfer of legal services. The outgoing contractor dealt with several cases, and the runoff work was left with the outgoing contractor. The incoming contractor then picked up all the new work, and the question was whether TUPI applied. And the Employment Appeals Tribunal in that case said no, it didn't. Because the work in progress hadn't transferred across, there was no application of TUPI. It's a sort of surprising result. It means that TUPI is going to be construed more narrowly in terms of its application, which should give rise to some room for mischief. So what are the other trends? Well, the other trend is uh, fragmentation. Now, this typically arises in a multi-sourcing situation where the services go from one party to two or three. Now, what the courts have been trying to do is fudge this. If they can identify where the staff should go, where the services go, they divide the staff up and send them to different locations. However, where there is some sort of random allocation of the duties, responsibilities, or the services, then it's impossible to tell where the services have been performed and in those circumstances, TUPI won't apply. And a number of companies have used the fragmentation cases to try and avoid an application of TUPI when they haven't negotiated a particularly good contract or want to get out of it or want to renegotiate the contract, <coughs> particularly where there are helpline arrangements. The final trend relates to 
uh, offshoring. Now, there was a lot of debate over the years as to whether the transfer regulations would apply to the transfer of services outside the European Union. And the courts in the Hollis case said that it would. In that case, involved the transfer of services from the UK to Israel. But the point to bear in mind about that case is it's an obiter <coughs> decision. And they said that the transfer regulations may apply. It's believed to be good law, but even though the regulations have been in place since 1981, we still don't have clarity. So moving on to when 2P applies, the next question is what are the implications of an application of 2P? Now I've summarised uh, the implications um, on the slide. Um, and also in the pack, as, as Paul mentioned before, we have a, a detailed note that sets out all the implications in quite a lot of detail interactive note. But the most important point is to think about is when, what, what are the implications that are missing? What does 2P not cover? 2P doesn't cover a number of things. Firstly, it doesn't oblige an outgoing contractor to provide information uh, to a potential incoming contractor quite early on in the bidding process. Now, there are rules under 2P that say the outgoing contractor has to provide employee liability information, but that only has to be provided 14 days before the transfer. The second issue is that there is no statutory indemnity. Acts, liabilities before the transfer go over under 2P to the incoming contractor. But there is no indemnity under 2P to deal with that. So the incoming contractor will see that as a concern. The third concern with 2P is that there is nothing to stop the outgoing contractor conducting some sort of mischief. It could take people away from the services, or it could put people on the services, which is known as social dumping, perhaps to avoid redundancy costs <coughs> in its own business. It could change the employee's remuneration arrangements. It could declare bonuses, which are payable after the transfer has taken place. And in that way, creating a poison pill from an employment perspective. And under 2P, broadly speaking, there's nothing to stop that. The final concern with 2P is that it doesn't deal with apportionment. There is nothing to say that employment costs before the transfer stay with the outgoing contractor and employment costs after the transfer go with the incoming contractor. So all these concerns have to be dealt with in some way by the contractual arrangements. And that brings us on to exit considerations. Because exit is really a pinch point from, the, uh, from an employment perspective. The incoming contractor will be saying, I want to know what all the, the, the costs are so I can price the bid accurately. I want an indemnity to stop liabilities coming to me from the outgoing contractor. I want to make sure there's no mischief or no poison pill in what is going on. And the only way that they can enforce that is by contract, and the only party that they contract with is the client. And this is the problem for the client, is the client will probably say, well, actually, you know, I can see why you're asking for that. It's sort of fair enough. But the only way they can give that protection is if they have thought about it when they enter into the contract with the outgoing contractor. So in the contract with the outgoing contractor, they have dealt with this, they have put mechanisms in place, they have put in appropriate indemnities so that they can pass on that benefit uh, in a legally enforceable manner. And the problem that arises in about 25% of outsourcings, particularly long-term outsourcings, is the contracts don't deal with these issues on exit, and that causes a whole host of problems. 